0: One of the joys of being out in Riverside last week preaching at Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church was to see a a congregation, a group of people who share so many things in common with us, commitment to the scriptures and and, uh, theological understanding of doctrines of grace and God's great work of redemption on our behalf, as well as a desire to make that good news known in the community and beyond, to disciple of the nations. And they, like us, are wrestling with what it, how is it that we go about doing that? It's easy to look around at uh, evangelicalism and kind of find all the things you don't like and just point them out. We don't do this, we don't do that, and we don't like that over there, and we're not too keen about that here, and and on and on. It's easy to, uh, to pull the speck out of your brother's eye, right? And miss the log hanging out of your own. So one of the things that I have enjoyed and am enjoying as a... Develop a relationship with Milton Vincent and the the uh, church there at Cornerstone, and they with us. By the way, he sends his greetings. I saw him last night at a at an event, and he sends his greetings to you. He most enjoyed his time here. But one of the things that uh, that that I am looking forward to is is um, Foothill Bible Church, Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church, wrestling independently and together, and cross pollinating with one another. How do we Do we carry out the mandate of the Great Commission? How is it that we disciple the nations? We are uh, fast approaching Easter. It's coming at us quickly. We don't get a lot of cultural uh, advance warning like we do with Christmas, right? So it can tend to sneak up on us. Uh, Yet, Easter is the great day, is it not? It is the day of victory uh, for... All that Christ came to do. And yet so many times it sneaks right up and boom, it's Easter Sunday before you know it and and then it's gone again. And so uh, this year uh, to try to help us uh, not to have it sneak up on us uh, so quickly and to provide opportunities for you for this fellowship to uh, engage our community, to engage your neighbors, your friends, your family members, co-workers and so forth. There are a number of Easter activities that are coming. And so um, be aware of that Uh, Easter or excuse me, Palm Sunday evening, April the 1st, the uh, Master's Chorale will be here. Some of you were here. uh, Was it two years ago, Ron, that they were here? Yes. So they will be here singing that evening, the Master's Chorale, and it'll be the music is fabulous. The gospel message is um, clear and woven in through testimony and song. And so this would be a tremendous opportunity for you to take advantage, to invite someone to come and to listen and to hear and then give you something to continue your relational evangelism with that particular person. We're also planning a uh, Good Friday service. So Friday evening, that would be uh, April the 4th, I believe. uh, Friday evening, so that would be available to you as well. And then of course, uh, Easter Sunday morning, will be a time when, um, when we will celebrate the resurrection together and uh, there is a group of people working very diligently right now and I don't have all the details to give you, but let me just tell you that it's going to be a glorious day of celebration and you will want to invite your friends to come and to be part of it all, okay? So this is part of what it means to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him. In the New Testament... One of the more frequent metaphors we encounter to describe the church is a body. The metaphor of a body. It occurs over and over and over again in the New Testament. In uh, chapter 12 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he gives us an extended treatment of that metaphor, doesn't he? And he uses the human body and he, in in a fair amount of detail, he sort of spells out the interconnectedness within the human body and the relationship of various parts and members of the body to illustrate the reality of our unity in Jesus Christ and the need to minister one to another. That is in the context, right, of the spiritual gift section of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and fourteen, and so, body life, if we can call it that, the, the ministry of one to another within the body of Christ, is a very important piece of what it means to live the Christian life. We here at FBC are a body. We are a body, and the way we relate to one another speaks volumes about our belief and understanding of this key New Testament doctrine. So open your Bibles to Romans. This is my favorite expression and will be for many, many months to come. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Okay? Chapter 1. If you are using a pew Bible, that's page 1125. And let me read for you Romans 1 beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 15, although we are not going to make it all the way to verse 15 this morning. You know what was really neat at Cornerstone? They have two services. The reason they have two services is because the, the building that they rent is not big enough to, to fully accommodate the congregation. So there's two services, and, and you, um, you get to preach twice. And the, the neat part of that is that you can correct all your mistakes in the second service. You know, all those slips of the lip, you can, uh, you can go back and have another uh, whack at it. So, but uh, I rejoice in being able to address everybody at one time here. Anyway, Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. Paul introduces himself in the first six verses with a rather lengthy introduction that we have spent a lengthy amount of time with. He now continues here with a standard form greeting, standard that is for the New Testament time, in which he will address those to whom the letter is sent. And he addresses them here in verse 7, to all beloved of God in Rome. And again, in keeping with tradition of the time, particularly Paul's tradition, he offers a prayer of thanksgiving for his his addressees. And then he explains the purpose of his writing the letter. That's a very typical way to uh, to handle New Testament correspondence. Now, many uh, consider this flyover territory, meaning that they they read through this quickly and they want to get on to other things and sort of see this as preliminary matters that they can skim over. But I want to pause here a little while longer in this, this introduction material and take a closer look at this passage, verses 7 through 15. And the reason I want to do this is because I believe that we can discern five expressions of body life Five expressions of body life that we can implement here at Foothill Bible Church so that we will be a living, loving testimony for Christ. I think there are at least five things that we can pull from these verses 7 through 15. And so I want to do that with you beginning this morning. And I suspect it will carry us into next week as we do that. So five expressions of body life. All right. Here in these verses. First one in verse 7, you have a handout I've given that to you. The first one is to bless one another. Blessing one another, the first expression of body life here from verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing is the grace to you and peace. That is the blessing that Paul confers upon this fellowship. Now, it's interesting to note here that Paul addresses this letter to all the Christians who are at Rome. This letter is not specifically addressed to the, to the leaders of the church in Rome, nor is it addressed to those individuals that he calls out by name in, in chapter 16, right? You remember there that he calls out so-and-so and wants to send his greeting specifically to certain individuals. But here the letter is, is a wide-open letter. It is to the believers of Rome without distinction. That means that what he has to say in this letter is for everybody to hear. This is for all to hear. And here in verse 7, he uses two descriptive phrases to to, uh, describe these believers in Rome. Two phrases, they are in verse 7, the beloved of God and the saints. Those are the two phrases that describe the believers in Rome to whom the letter is addressed the beloved of God and the saints. Now, we notice that he calls them loved or beloved of God. He doesn't describe them as those that love God. He talks about them as those that are loved by God. And that's an important distinction. John says that we love because he first loved us, not that we loved him first. It is God's initiative in love that reaches out to us. And that is a theme that the apostle is going to develop in great detail later in this letter. But for now he just includes it as his his uh, salutation to the people here that you are the beloved of God, that is you are the ones whom God has set his love upon. God's love precedes, God loves, God loves, God's love accompanies, God's love surrounds the believer. It is God's initiative. And God's love for us is, is not just a sentimental attachment to us. It is an effectual love. It is an active love. It is a love that brings about result. Romans 5, Paul will later say, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ what? he died for us. OK, so God's love for the believer there at Rome and by extension to us is not a sentimental love. It is an active, effectual love that brings about our redemption. The beloved of God there in Rome. Secondly, he, call, he says that they are called as saints. The as is in italics in the New American Standard because it is not there originally in the Greek. It's it's added there by the translators to try to help with this called as saints or called saints literally. And what this is, the, you know, this word is sometimes um, misunderstood, this word saints. It means set apart ones. It means the holy ones. And notice it refers to the whole church, Right. Those there in Rome are called as saints or saints by calling, if you like. That is that every believer there in Rome is a saint. It is not, as is confused by some, certain select individuals that somehow have achieved a a level of spiritual status and standing whereby uh, that they are then available to be uh, spoken to in prayer and called upon for assistance in the living of the Christian life, as some might erroneously say. Teach. There are no special saints as far as the Gospels are concerned. We are all saints if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Saints by calling. We are the set-apart ones. We are the holy ones. Holy not because of any virtue within us, but because of the righteousness of Christ applied to us by faith. Now, he says saints by calling are called as saints. Now, the word calling here is not a reference uh, to the process of naming. Okay, I'm, um, People call me David. That is my name. That's not what he's talking about here. It is not just the name. He is referring when he talks about calling to the effectual grace that God um, uh, pours out into a person when He calls them to Himself, when He summons them from unbelief into belief and grants them life in Christ. That is the calling. And so the idea behind the description here is they are saints by virtue of having been called by God. By virtue of God's summoning of them into salvation, they become saints the moment of their belief. At the moment a person places saving faith in Jesus Christ, they become a saint. They now arrive at a new status. They were once enemies of God. They were once at enmity with God. God was opposed to them. They were under condemnation. They now become the set-apart ones, the beloved ones of God, the holy ones, His children. Called out of the world, called apart to God. To the triune God summoned to a set-apart life to live not for ourselves, but for His glory. When Paul uses these expressions here in verse 7, Beloved of God, called the saints, he is introducing great themes that he will take up in much more detail later in this letter. The great themes of election right, and predestination. And Paul will take them up in great detail and so will I when we get there. But for now you will have to satisfy yourself with just the sneak preview those that are beloved of God saints by virtue of their calling It is to these individuals and to us that Paul now offers a blessing a twofold blessing here verse 7 grace to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ Grace to you a very common Pauline formula of greeting. It is a blessing that he offers to the people that he writes to. Grace is God's unmerited favor poured out upon guilt-laden sinners because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is God's unmerited favor poured out upon all of us who are guilt-laden sinners and undeserving of it, but receive it by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. The grace, the word grace is really the sum total of the gospel, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result or not of works, result of works so that no one should boast. It is the grace of God poured out. Grace to you now, the grace he's talking about here, beloved, is not so much the grace of salvation or the grace that that initiates salvation as much as it is the ongoing grace that maintains our salvation and provides the means whereby we can live in, in conformity to the will of God. That is the grace that he is, that he is blessing them with. It is the ongoing grace it is the grace that that uh, generates within us and motivates. The fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the grace that Paul is, is blessing these people. That he is wishing upon them. This ongoing grace that motivates, sustains, and energizes the Christian life. It is the grace that enables believers to face persecution persecution and trial without turning from Christ, but standing firm all the way to the end and growing more and more and more in love with their Savior in spite of the pressure that is upon them. That is the grace that Paul is wishing upon this assembly. It is the grace that enables believers to overcome temptation, to say no to sin and its lusts, to break the bondage of sin that grips our hearts this is the grace that Paul is wishing upon this congregation it is the grace that emboldens believers to speak out for Jesus Christ in spite of opposition to be able to use their mouth to articulate the great news of the gospel that is available at home and school and work and amongst their family members and so forth this is the grace that Paul is is wishing upon these people the grace of God. Grace to you and peace. Secondly, verse 7, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace brings peace. It's not the other way around. It's not peace and then grace. It's grace and then peace. Grace is the engine. Peace is the caboose that is towed behind the great engine of grace. And the, and the peace that Paul is, is talking about here can only be understood against the background of alienation. The alienation that that sin produces between the the Creator and the creation. Peace, biblically in the New Testament, is a state of reconciliation with God. It is is the ending of the hostility that exists between the Creator and the creation. It is the end of the hostility that exists between God and me. That comes from knowing that my sin has been dealt with. That God no longer is my enemy, but He is my Father, my friend. It is that peace that Paul is wishing upon them. Those that have partaken of the grace of redemption will be followed with the peace that comes to the believer. A peace with God, a vertical peace and a horizontal peace between one another. How many times have you driven down the road and seen a bumper sticker on a car that says something noble like visualize world peace, whatever in the world that could possibly have to do with it? I suppose, you know, if we visualize it long enough, you'll get a headache, but it will do nothing to bring peace to this world. The reason the world is in turmoil is because the world is alienated from its creator and is living in open defiance against him. There can be no peace. Until there is reconciliation. And beloved, there can be no peace inside our hearts until we have been reconciled to our Creator. Until we have experienced the grace of God. Grace is the engine that tows the car of peace. Peace with God. Peace internally. Peace in terms of living in harmonious interpersonal relationships are all driven from the grace of God dealing with our sin. And it all goes back to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It always goes back to the cross. These are available only through the cross of Jesus Christ. So, if the first expression of body life that that Paul hints at here is grace to you and peace, how do we apply that here at Foothill? How do we apply this prayer request, this prayer wish here at Foothill? Well, let me suggest you a a couple of possibilities, Okay, One is that we could begin and end every conversation that we have with another believer by blessing them and saying grace to you and peace. Not just a repetition of some words, but a heartfelt uh, impassioned wish that they would know the grace of God in the situation in which they find themselves and the consequent peace that comes from knowing that grace. Regardless of the personal circumstances that we find ourselves in, you're, you're talking to somebody and they're telling you about a certain situation in their life, maybe something very painful going on right that time, you can bless them by wishing God's grace upon them and His peace. It reminds them and you that it, that uh, that Christ has purchased peace for us and that regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves that we are not alone that we have been redeemed we have been reconciled to God and as my friend Milton Vincent said last week regardless of the search, uh, situation at least you are not in the lake of fire right And so it doesn't matter how bad it is. You are still experiencing the grace of God and thus your heart can know peace. So we may bless one another. We may wish upon one another that you might know the grace of God and its consequent peace. It's a subtle way to remind each other that circumstances are not to rule over us. As simple as that. You know, it's so easy to forget that. It is so easy to allow the circumstances to get the better of us, right? Right to be swamped by whatever is going on in our lives at that present moment. Difficulties at work, problems at home with the kids, marital problems. You've got a neighbor who's hard to get along with. You've got got a financial concern. The car breaks down. There's not enough money to get it fixed. And on and on it goes. You go to the doctor and he tells you you have six months to live. Whatever it may be. It is easy to be overwhelmed by those circumstances. We need to remind ourselves and we need to remind one another that we can live in full confidence knowing that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have experienced the grace of God and are experiencing the grace of God. Thus, we can know His peace. We can apply this within the body here. Secondly, second expression of body life is to be thankful for one another. To be thankful... For one another. Very simple concept. To be thankful for one another. Verse 8. First. I love the way the Apostle Paul does it. He does it all the time. He says first and then he goes on, but he never gets to second. Did you ever notice that? He starts more lists and never finishes. And here's another one. First. Okay? What an amazing mind he had. It was just... I think it was like a, like a uh, pinball. You know? dung dong dong. But anyway. First... He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, remember, don't forget, he's writing to people he doesn't know. He's writing to people he's never met. He knows a few. Again, at the end of chapter 16, he, he knocks off a dozen or so names, but but he really doesn't know the believers here. Yet he says that he is First of all, first thing, and at least in significance, he says, I am thankful through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I am thankful because it is obvious that you have experienced the grace of God. That is what I am thankful about. And therefore, I will direct my thanksgiving to the one who is the source of your redemption, God himself. Now, nothing about his statement here is any, is any indication about the strength of their faith. He's not, he's not opining on how strong the faith is. He is just opining and thanksgiving for the fact that they have faith in Christ. The very fact that they believe is that which generates thanksgiving in his heart. Paul has not been responsible for bringing the gospel to them, but that does not matter. He is thankful that they have been evangelized. And have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, an obvious question is, how does he know that they have believed? How does he know that they have faith? Look again, verse 8. The answer is because it's being proclaimed throughout the whole world, right? Now, there's a little bit of Paul engages in a little bit of hyperbole here when he says throughout the whole world, he's he's not talking about throughout the whole world as you and I would conceive of the globe. Right. And every corner of the globe, he is using that expression to speak of the reality, first of the known world for him and and more specifically of the Roman Empire and more specifically than that of the capital city of the Roman Empire, the, the imperial city, the mother city, Rome itself. And he's saying that the gospel, he is thankful that the gospel has spread even to Rome. That would be like saying, we are thankful the gospel is spread even to Washington, D.C., of all the unlikely places for it to go. Okay? It has gone to Rome. And the believers in that city did not hide their faith. They didn't keep it under a bushel basket. Their faith was being proclaimed. The world knew that the church had arrived in Rome. Now think with me on this. It's only been a couple of decades. Since there were a small group of believers huddled in an upper room, right, in in fear and danger of their very existence. And now this fledgling movement has spawned a a worldwide massive uh, conversion of the of the Roman Empire to the point where it's arrived even in the capital city. It's Incredible. Paul is thankful for that kind of spread of the gospel. And he knows that it has spread because it is being declared, it says, verse eight, throughout the whole world, being proclaimed, I think, through word and deed. Through word and deed. As people pass through the imperial city for whatever reason, to do business or, or, or some kind of politics or maybe soldiers being moved around and this and that, and, and people just move in and out of the city, they come in contact with the believers and they carry the news elsewhere that you won't believe this. Not only is the way operational in Palestine, the backwater of the Roman Empire, it's reached to Rome itself. And it's reached right into Caesar's bodyguard. The Gospel has has infiltrated the empire. And Paul's thankful. He is thankful. Are we thankful? How thankful are we Let's make it personal. How thankful are we for one another here at Foothill? How thankful are you for the other believers that are sitting here this morning? Do you, are, you know, is there any gratitude in your heart to God for what He has done? Not just in your life. And I know that you know, your life is intensely personal and you're thankful about that. But are you thankful for what God has done in me? And how about in this person over here and that person there and those ones up in the balcony? Are you thankful for that? Do you care what God has done? Do you thank God for others within the body here? Or do you find yourself grumbling about their peccadellos and their personality quirks? The ways that they rub you wrong, maybe irritate you a little bit. Certain things they do or say or dress or whatever that bug you. Is that what occupies your mind or is it a heartfelt thanksgiving for the grace of God in their life? How do we develop an attitude of thanksgiving? How do we develop an attitude of thanksgiving for one another here at Foothill? Let me suggest something to you. It's simple. But here it is. Look for evidences of grace in their lives. Look for evidences of grace in their lives. That is ways in which God is at work in them. As you look at someone, as you meet someone, as you know one another, be on the lookout for how God has worked in their life. And then encourage them with the progress that you've seen. Encourage them with the progress in faith that you have observed. All to the glory of God. This is not a pat one another on the back time, right? And say, you know, you're okay, I'm okay, and we're doing pretty good, and let's go to lunch. It's a, serious, it's a serious way to encourage one another to grow in the faith. And to, to acknowledge to the glory of God that He really is at work. He really is at work. I mean, you can say to somebody, I can really see God working in you. I really see that. You know, when I first met you... This is where it gets a little dicey, alright? When I first met you... You struggled with patience. You struggled with patience. But you know, I can see God at work in you. And I, you know, I've noticed in the last six months that you're more patient. Can I, can I continue to encourage you in that area? Can I even pray for you in that area? I can see God at work in you. You're a more patient person now. You know, when so-and-so came to you and Said that thing, that, that could provoke. Yet you handled it with such patience. God, is at work in you? You're still a m- wretched, miserable sinner, <laughs> you know, in, in need of, of God's full redemption. So don't get your head, you know, too big here. But, but God is at work, and I can see it. I can see it. I can remember when, um, when you used to hold back for ministry. I remember the time when I first met you, you weren't involved in ministry at all. You would just come on Sunday morning and you'd sit in the pew and you'd smile and shake hands, but you didn't have any involvement in the, in the ministry life of the church. You weren't, you weren't serving and expressing your spiritual giftedness to others within the body. You weren't serving at all. But wow, look at you now. Look at you now. Look at, look at what God has done in your life. Look how He has helped you to get beyond yourself. You would have never been able to do that before. You would have said, oh, no, I can't do that. And now look at you. God is at work in you. See, beloved, we can encourage one another that way, right? We can be thankful to God for what He has done in somebody else's life. That's powerful. That builds the unity of the body of Christ here at Foothill. Third. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. Verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Paul's praying for the believers at Rome. That's it. I mean, it's that simple. The expression of body life is that Paul is praying for the believers at Rome. That's amazing. He doesn't know them. Yet he's praying for them. And he wants them to know that he's praying for them. He even takes an oath here. Did you see that? I mean, this is incredible. Paul takes an oath to them to to certify the reality that he really is praying for them. He's not just, you know, this is not happy talk. He's not just blowing smoke up their nose. He's he's saying, I really am praying for you. And he calls the omniscient God as his witness that he's really doing it. He wants these people to know how earnestly he is praying Praying for them. God, whom I serve in my spirit. That, by the way, is a, that's a mysterious phrase. Whom I serve in my spirit. You get about 15 commentaries and get 20 opinions on what he's talking about there. Okay? I'm not sure. Maybe it means his inner self. That kind of worked the best for me. Paul's saying in, in, in his inner self, he's serving God, right? In the preaching of the Gospel. That's how, that's how wrapped up he is, and that what he's been called to do. But he calls this omniscient God as his witness, that a truthfulness of his statement. And he says to the Romans, and he, and he uses two words here, right? He says, unceasingly and always," verse 10, beginning of verse 10, that his prayer is unceasing and it's always." Now, I think in context here, he's not talking about that 24-7, he does nothing but pray for the Roman church, the Roman believers, okay? Now, I don't think anybody would seriously try to put that forward. I think what he's talking about in context here is that he regularly and frequently prays for the believers in Rome. They are on his heart. He thinks about them. He's connected to them. He's never met them, but he, but he feels a, a connection to them because why? Well, they are part of the body of Jesus Christ. They both, can, they both are, are, have the indwelling Spirit of God within them who has made them part of the family. And so he regularly and he fervently is praying for them. He wants them to know that these people are near and dear to his heart. Near and dear to his heart. So what is it? That he's unceasingly making mention of in his prayers. What is it that Paul is praying for regarding these believers in Rome? Well, in verse 10, he, he speaks about his prayer. one of his prayer requests, that he wants to come and see them. He'd like to travel to Rome and, and, and see them, and he would like to have some ministry among them. And that's certainly a part of what he's praying about, but I don't think that's all. Now, I don't know what he's specifically praying about. I just have to admit that, okay? So this is if you'll permit me a little sanctified speculation here at the moment I will tell you what I what I think he probably what what was part of his prayer for the church at Rome. And in order to do that I need you to turn over to the right to Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? If you're using those Pew Bibles you want to go to page 1169. We go over to Ephesians chapter 1. And we have there a, a written sample prayer from the Apostle Paul. There are a, there are a number of um, prayers contained, Paul's prayers contained in the New Testament. There's a good book in the bookstore, by the way, that uh, I think it's called Spiritual Reformation. It's on the bottom of your study guide, and it, talks, it's, it um, um, looks at those prayers. I think there's about a half a dozen of them, and it looks at them in some detail. It would be a helpful book to you, by the way, in your prayer life. But here in Ephesians 1, Paul writes down for us what he prays, at least for the church at Ephesus, both in chapter 1 and chapter 3. We have an example of the types of prayers that Paul prayed for believers. That's why I said a little bit of sanctified speculation here. Verse 15, Ephesians 1. He says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Well, what do you pray, Paul? Well, here it is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now that is a mouthful. Okay. Basically, what he is praying here is that they would know who they are in Jesus Christ. Verses one through fourteen, Paul lays out the great theological truth of who we are in Christ. All right? Beginning verse three through fourteen, one big long sentence. That he speaks of God's work of predestination and election and and adoption and all the great doctrines of salvation. And then he says that I pray that you might know who you are. That you might understand who you are in Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. And over in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we get another example of his prayer. Beginning in verse 14, chapter three, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that you may dwell, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There he's praying that they might put to use their great riches in Christ. In chapter 1, he's, it's a prayer for their enlightenment. Here it's a prayer for their enablement. That they would act in accordance with who they are and the great riches that have been purchased for them in Jesus Christ. These two prayers, one and three, are about knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. So, back in Romans chapter one, don't know exactly what he's praying there regularly and fervently for the believers in Rome, but perhaps it is. Similar to his prayer for the believers at Ephesus. That they would know who they are in Jesus Christ and that they would act in accordance with that great position. We can pray that way for each other here, can't we? I don't have to know you and the intimate details of your life. I don't need to know every nuance of what's wrong with you or what you're concerned about. And I'm not saying that it's not important to know those things. But in a congregation this size, you can't possibly know everybody. So we cannot all know each other at that level of intimacy. But that doesn't mean we can't pray for one another. See, we can pray the way the Apostle Paul prays. He doesn't know all the believers in Rome. He doesn't know all the believers in Ephesus. But he still prays for them. And we can pray in the same way with the same kind of confidence. If we pray along those similar lines. We can pray for one another that that we would know who we are in Christ and that we would act in accordance with our great riches that Christ has purchased for us. Can you imagine what would happen around here if 400 people came to a clear knowledge of who they are in Jesus Christ and began to grab hold of the spiritual riches he has purchased and put them to effect in their lives. We might actually reach this city for Jesus Christ, you know what? We might actually reach this city for Christ if we begin to act in accordance with who we really are in Christ. We can pray for one another. You can pray for me, I can pray for you. We have a picture directory we can work through a picture directory. Add it to your devotion time. Add it to your family devotion time. One of the things that impressed me years ago when Dennis Wilson and Scott Collins and I had opportunity to go down to Brazil and spend some time with Dan Hubiard down there was that Dan had our picture directory from Foothill Bible Church, half of which he didn't even know the people. And as part of their evening devotions together, they would pray page by page, picture by picture through that directory. Beloved, we can pray for one another. And as we pray for one another, God will answer those prayers and things that are powerful will happen in this place. We will be drawn together in a unity and a love and a bond that will be so appealing to the world outside, they'll be banging the doors down to come in and get a piece of it. We're going to reach this community for Jesus Christ. And we need to love One another. By this, all men, you will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Love for one another. Love for one another. This is a tangible way that we can express that love for one another. Well, that's three. Two more to go. Do I have a second service? You come back and I give you the other two. Alright? You'll have to come next week for those. Maybe you're with us for the first time this morning. You're walking in on this and I'm glad you're here. You're not here by accident. The providence of God in your life has directed your steps. You're here. We're glad you're here. We'd like to minister to you this morning. Maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal, saving way. You know of Him. You know some facts about His life. You may even believe what you know. You may believe that He's the Son of God and that He came to earth born of the Virgin. That He lived a sinless life and then willingly surrendered Himself as the prophet Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53, right? That that He surrendered Himself. There was no guilt found within Him, yet He surrendered Himself up to a brutal crucifixion. And that upon Him, His Father poured out His wrath. His accumulated fury against a a creation that was living in open defiance to Him. You might know that and you might believe that. But if it's only in a general sense, if you have not personalized that, if you have not come to the place in your life where you are willing to humble your heart before Him and and recognize to Him that God, I am the one who belonged on that cross. That the anger and wrath that was poured out on Christ was mine. And that I do belong in the lake of fire. That's where I should be even at this moment. Save me. Save me. For if I were to die today, I have no hope. See, I know what's inside my heart. I know the wickedness that lodges there. The unrighteous thoughts, the lust, the greed, the perversions. And I know when I die, I'm going to have to give account for them. The Bible says it's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. There is an accounting. And I know that I cannot stand, I've got nothing to offer. What am I going to give the Creator in exchange for the sin of my soul? What do I have of value to offer Him? I've got nothing. I am broke. Bankrupt. Corrupt. Anything I even were to touch to try to offer to Him as a gift would be contaminated by my own defiled hands. I've got nothing. I need a righteousness outside of me. I need a righteousness that is uncontaminated, undefiled by fallen humanity to stand in my place. I need another to bear my guilt and to give me his righteousness. See, beloved, and that's the gospel. There it is right there. That by faith, I embrace the reality that God, that God man died for me. All of His perfection. All of His righteousness. That perfect human life lived those 33 plus years is now mine by faith. It's credited to my bank account. And all of the overdrafts, all of the defilement, all of the sin and the disgustingness is poured out on Him. A substitute who died in my place. God, I know I need that. I believe. I believe. If that is your heartfelt prayer this morning, you call out to God. You call out to God. As we end the service, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross, as there is every Sunday. The reason they're there is to pray with you, answer any questions that you might have. Maybe something that has been said this morning is mystifying to you, you'd like some clarification. Maybe there's a burning desire in your heart of something. You're not even sure exactly what it is. You just, you just know that you need somebody to talk to. Maybe there's a pain and a sorrow and a grief that's so heavy on your heart you want someone to pray with you. Maybe you've come to the recognition that you need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in believer's baptism. That you have postponed that step of discipleship long enough. Maybe you want to unite with the body here in formal membership and say, yes, put me in the game, coach. I want to be part of this. Any and all of those reasons and many, many more. You come right behind that white door. There's a, there's a beautiful room where they will take you and sit and pray with you, talk to you. We're not here to twist your arms. I couldn't convince you to come to the kingdom of God. I've, there's no one who's eloquent enough. In the work of God alone. But if you've got something that you need to talk about, you come. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank You for this body that You've assembled here in Upland. 1330 West 15th Street. Foothill Bible Church. Not the buildings the people. And I thank You, our Father, for Your work of grace in each and every one of their hearts. Every one of them has a story. A unique story as to how You intervened at a moment in time and rescued them from the ravages of their sin and depravity. How You opened their eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ. How You flooded their hearts with love for Him and and how they embraced Him as their Savior. And and how You have been so faithful ever since. To walk with them through this life. Day by day. Moment by moment. Pouring out Your grace upon them. Flooding them with Your goodness and mercy. Everyone with a testimony. Lord, we thank You. And we do pray. That we would come to a better understanding of who we really are in Christ. And... And the resources purchased through Him for us. That we might then take that to this community who desperately needs to hear. For Your name's sake, our Father, we ask. Amen.